0: Well, good morning, Emmanuel faith. Um, uh, last week I was walking through our staff workroom, and and there's a book sitting on the table in there that had a a free sign on it. It immediately caught my attention. Um, and it was, uh, this book, it's called the art of hitting by Tony Gwynn and being a Colorado Rockies fan, I immediately put it down. Um, I'm just kidding. It's actually an autographed copy. Tony signed this copy of his book, and so I grabbed it, and I took it home to my son, and I said to my son, I will pay you to read this book. Um, He's a baseball player, loves baseball, and this book unpacks how Tony Gwynn approached hitting. Hitting. Now, if you don't know anything about Tony Gwynn, shame on you, number one, you live in San Diego, okay? But Tony hit 338 over the course of 20 years, was a first ballot Hall of Famer, an amazing Major League Baseball player, one of the best hitters of his generation, certainly, and maybe of all time. And in it, this book, he says, listen, hitting is one of the most difficult things to do in all of sports. You have to hit a round ball with a round object. But in this book, he tells you what his approach to hitting was. And the whole goal of this book is to tell you how to hold the bat like Tony held the bat, how to stand at the plate like Tony stood at the plate, and how to hit the ball like Tony hit the ball. Uh, This book wants to teach you how to imitate Tony. And we learn a lot by imitation, don't we? I mean, just think of it in the 1980s and 1990s, how many kids were out on a basketball court and they had their tongue hanging out of their mouth, right? Because they wanted to be like Mike. They wanted to be like Mike. I mean, how many people have tried to imitate Frank Sinatra? or the beatles or even nirvana I mean how many people have tried to sound like those famous bands even now today We have people that are called social media influencers And they're people that other people imitate and so companies pay them to use their products so that their products will sell And we live in a world where imitation is something we come by by nature But did you know that in the scriptures, we're called to imitate intentionally? And in fact, that's where the Apostle Paul is going to go as he continues his letter to the Ephesians. If you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open to Ephesians chapter 5. It's on page 1000 in the Pew Bible that's in front of you there. We're continuing the series we've been in over the last few weeks. where We're exploring the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. It's a church that he loved dearly, a church that he knew well because he spent three years ministering to them. And now at the time of his writing, Paul's in a Roman jail cell in about 62 AD, and he's writing back to this church and he's giving them a picture of what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. And listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter five, verse one. Are you there? Three of you are. That's enough for me. Okay. Here's what Paul writes. He says this. Therefore be what imitators of God as beloved children in the Greek. In this, this word imitate is the word mimic and it's where we get our English word to mimic. And so Paul says mimic or imitate God. I mean, let that sink in on you for just a moment. That's a pretty high calling, is it not? I mean, it may sound a little bit like hit like Tony or drive a ball like Tiger or dunk like LeBron. Good luck with that. Right? I mean, it's a very high calling. And for most of us, for most of us, our vision for living the life that Jesus designed us to live dies off on the foundations of doubt. We don't think that this is actually possible. But Jesus did. Listen to what he said to his disciples, his followers. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained. Will you read this line with me, church? Will be like his teacher. Will be like his teacher. Yeah, yeah. imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. But it's also the sincerest form of apprenticeship, of discipleship. And before you start making all sorts of qualifications in your mind, let me just say that our imitation of God will always be imperfect. Take a deep breath, okay? It will always be imperfect. But it can always be improving. It can always be progressing. And that's the call that Paul is going to lay in front of the church at Ephesus and he gives them the reasoning. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. And a lot of times we get this wrong and we start to read it. Be imitators of God so that you become beloved children. When you imitate God, he'll love you more. That is not at all what the apostle Paul is saying. He's saying, you are children of God. By faith, you have been redeemed. You have been saved. You have been raised to life with Christ. The spirit of God lives in you. Encompassed within this, you are children of God, is all of what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. That's true of you right now. You don't imitate God to become children of God. You imitate God because you already are. Children of God. And it's the outflow of the gospel in our life. And throughout this passage, in these 20 verses, Paul is going to give us this picture of what that looks like. And he's going to draw out three ways that we are called to imitate God or invited to imitate God. And he uses this, this term, this Hebrew idiom to walk as his way of pointing out this is what it looks like to imitate God. This is what it looks like on the ground. In real, everyday life. Each one of these walks, these three walks that Paul's going to draw out, are countercultural. They're going to rub against some of our humanity. They're going to rub against some of our natural desires. And so the question that I have for you this morning is, did you come to hear from God? Here's what Paul writes. He says this, the first walk, or I'll call them gospel limps. The first gospel limp is this. And walk in the way of love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. That's the first gospel limp that Paul points out. And if you're here, you might be wondering well, Ryan, you said these were going to be countercultural. Love is anything but countercultural. Everybody talks about love. Everybody loves love. I'm not so sure. At least not in the way that the scriptures talk about love. See, this word love in the Greek is the word agape. And it means the settled intention to will the good of another. Even when they wrong me, I will will their good. Even when they mistreat me, I will will their good. This is the call of Jesus for every one of his followers. We don't get to pray about who we love. We only get to pray about how we love. You've never met somebody you were not called to will the good of. But there's another side to this coin too, because we live in the wake of the sexual revolution. And in many ways, the sexual revolution of the 1960s and there beyond redefined the way that we looked at this word. Uh, we started to look at the word love and the thought was, well, I can do anything with my body, with anyone else, so long as I'm not hurting anyone. And it started to distort. Not started, it continued to distort the way that God views love and the way that the scriptures call us to love. And so Paul doesn't want us to be able to go there. He doesn't want us to confuse lust and love. And so he writes in verses 3 and 4 But sexual immorality and in all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And let there be no Filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. See, he doesn't want us to confuse lust and love. And because of the scriptures and in the States, because of the Puritans, we have an idea for what this might look like, lived out and played out. But you just have to hear that for the Apostle Paul's original audience, this would have been like a mind-blowing statement. You're kidding me. We can't do these things? We can't live this way? It was almost as natural as just breathing air. Aren't you glad we've progressed beyond this? This word that's translated sexual immorality is the word pornea in the Greek. It's where we get our English word pornography. Do you know that right now, pornography is a ninety seven billion dollar industry in the States? Ninety seven billion dollars. That somewhere between ten and thirty percent of the internet is pornography. I mean, let that sink in for just a moment. Between 10 and 30% of the internet is pornography. That There are more hits on pornographic websites today than there are on Amazon, Netflix, and Twitter combined. Combined. There's even a song in a Broadway musical entitled The Internet is for Porn. I mean, this is the world that we live in. We have not progressed much beyond what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus about. But his point is, don't confuse lust with love. Sexual immorality is a using of people rather than a honoring of people. It's a way to receive something for ourselves when love is a posture of giving of ourselves. Paul pointed that out in verse 2. And here's his point. This gospel limp to walk in the way of love means that we choose self-sacrifice over self-indulgence. Yeah, the Ephesians would have been very familiar with self-indulgence. They lived in the shadow of Artemis' temple. She was one of the major gods that was worshipped in Ephesus, and her temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would come from all over the world to worship, quote-unquote, in Artemis' temple. And the way that they worshipped was through temple prostitution and mass orgies. So most of the followers of Jesus who are present in Ephesus when they get Paul's letter, have come out of this type of an environment and this type of a culture. And so instead of sexual indulgence or sexual immorality, Paul writes this at the very end of verse 4. He says, instead, let there be, instead of all the coarse joking, he says, distance yourself from that. Instead, let there be, are you tracking with me what? Thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. I love the way that John Stott captured this idea. Because the Apostle Paul isn't saying just be thankful in some arbitrary manner. He's saying be thankful for the gift of sexuality. This is one of God's great gifts to humanity. John Stott wrote this. Whereas sexual impurity and covetousness both express self-centered acquisitiveness, thanksgiving is the exact opposite. And so it's the antidote required. It's the recognition of God's generosity. As Jesus followers, our call is to have a view of our sexuality that's God-centered rather than self-centered. And what God says is that when we give thanks for something, we have a lot harder time abusing that thing. So Paul says, be thankful but I think in order to, I'm going to chase a little bit of a rabbit trail here, I, I think there's two pendulums, though, when it comes to sexuality. One side is what we see in Ephesus, this impurity and just craziness. The other side is what I might call, um, instead of purity, it swings to a prudishness. Did you know that in the history of the church, the Roman Catholic Church had a season where they tried to limit how much married couples had sexual intercourse? Did you know that? And for one season, they limited sexual contact within a marriage to only two days a week. Tuesday and Wednesday. And even then, people had to come and confess afterwards. That's not at all what God intends, and it's not at all what Paul writes. He says, be thankful. For this gift, but use it in the way that God designed it to be used. And then he gives two very strong reasons for living in this way with this limp. Here's what he says. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God a difficult statement, isn't it? Paul's not mincing words. He makes this statement. You have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. He says it's a present tense as in right now. You cannot live in God's kingdom if you refuse to accept God's view of sexuality. It's impossible. You cannot say, God, you are my king. Jesus, you are my king, but I don't want to live in your way. I don't want to do things the way that you designed them. To be done. Paul says it doesn't work like that. You can't live in God's kingdom and reject the king. He goes on and he writes, let, there, let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't let anyone gloss over this. Don't let anyone poo-poo this or just push it off to the side. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It's also a present tense verb in the sense it's happening right now. This word wrath in the Greek is the word orge. It's where we get our English word orgy. It means anger or even punishment. But if it's happening right now, God's wrath towards those who act in sexual immorality is viewed more in God's pulling back than in God's active punishment. You can read about this in Romans chapter one. It's the exact same framework that Paul uses there where God's saying, I will not bless that. I will not put my stamp of approval on that. You will be unable to live the kind of life that I've designed you to live, to walk in the kind of joy that I've designed you to walk in, to experience the kind of love and wholeness and goodness that I want for you if you continue to go against the grain of my design. He's against porneia, quote-unquote, because he's for shalom and love. And see, when we dehumanize others to fulfill our desires, what this text is saying is we start to erode and destroy our own humanity. It kills us from the inside out. And notice the way that Paul diagnoses this problem in verse 6. He says, anyone who's immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, is what he says. So if you were to ask Paul over a cup of coffee or whatever they drank back then, Paul, what's the real problem? What's really going on in Ephesus? What's really going on in the human heart? He would say, idolatry. It's not ultimately a problem with our sexuality. It's a problem with our heart. It's a problem with our worship. That we have bowed. And we are worshiping the triune God. Of me, myself, and I. That's what he says sexual indulgence is. So um, a few pastoral words for you. Number one, what Paul is not saying is that if you've stumbled in this area, if you're caught up in sexual sin, he is not saying that you're beyond repair, that you can't be healed, that you can't find hope, and that you can't find light. That is not what Paul is saying. Please, if you hear his voice today, don't turn from him. Don't harden your heart. Run in repentance and say back to the king of kings and the lord of lords I declare that you are lord of heaven and earth and I want you to be lord of my life too I long to walk in your way with your heart In your joy That is possible. Please hear me lean in for a moment That is possible for every single person in this room this morning And it's god's desire for you to walk In his presence and his love and in his kingdom Second gospel limp, he says, therefore, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Walk as children of light for the fruit of light is found in all that's good and right and true. And by the way, those are the things that God wants for you. Good and right and true and try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. He says walk as light. It's the second gospel limp that makes us imitators of God. And the first thing Paul says is if you want to live his life, discern what pleases God. A question that you might want to ask yourself on a daily basis, or when you get into a difficult situation, you might want to ask yourself, What would Jesus do if he were me in this situation? Or maybe just simply ask Jesus, Jesus, how would you respond? If you got into this argument with your wife, if you got into this position in your job, uh, Jesus, how would you respond if you were me with my personality and my experiences and all that I'd been through? And just bring it before him and listen. Paul says, discern or learn what pleases God. And then he wrote this, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, by contrast, expose them. For it's shameful even to think of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. So he says, learn what pleases God and then expose the darkness. Now, just to be clear, I don't think that what Paul is suggesting is that you go to your neighbor's house and peek in the windows and go, caught ya, right? Please hear me on that. If you're not taking notes, take notes on that. Don't do that. Right? What he's saying is by your very presence, you start to expose darkness when you live as light. By showing up, you start to expose darkness by living as light. And Jesus had these exact same words, this exact same idea for his followers. He said this, you are the light of the world, manual faith, disciple of Jesus, apprentice to Jesus, a city on a hill Cannot be hidden nor do people put a light under a basket, but they put it on a stand So it gives light to the whole house in the same way Let your light shine before others so that they might see your good works and say you're awesome No So that they might see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven See when the light shines People see some of their shortcomings and their sin in a little bit more clear light. Have you ever been around somebody that was just really, really nice? I mean, really nice, like overly nice, the kind of nice that you walk away from and you go, I'm a little bit of a jerk, right? I think that's what Paul's talking about. Be that kind of light and be willing to speak up into the void. When questions come up and when people ask you for the reason, that the for the hope that you have. And he says this in verse 14, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Most commentators, scholars think that this was a hymn of the early church something that they had put music to and would sing on baptism Sundays and on resurrection Sunday as it recounts our reality under Adam and in Adam that we are asleep, that we are dead, and that we are in darkness. And Paul writes to the church and he says this, no, 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 when you walk as light, you trust that illumination often leads to transformation. And when Christ shines on us and illuminates some of the dark places in our soul, it can be scary. Amen? But it's also where freedom is found. is in letting the light shine in and on our darkness. And as followers of Jesus, we can live as light and we can bring the light of Jesus. But please hear me on this. Please lean in. Don't miss this. It's only Jesus that awakens hearts to life. It's not us as his followers, that's the Spirit's work. So if you're a parent that's been praying for a child that's walked away from the faith or you're a grandparent praying for your grandkids and just know, keep praying. But it's the work of the Spirit of God that breathes life into dead things and makes people come alive to Him. Keep praying that the Spirit of God would awaken. So we walk in love. We walk as light. And listen to what Paul says next. It's the third gospel limp. He writes this, Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. That we walk in wisdom. We walk in wisdom. And notice that Paul says, Look carefully then how you walk. In the original language, it would have meant and could be even translated, Walk with precision. Or walk with exactness. Pay attention to the steps that you take and the life that you live. I saw a preview, a commercial for a TV show that aired on Friday. It was about a man named Nick Walenda, And he's a tightrope walker. And he did this stunt where he walked across an active volcano being filmed live the entire time. Uh, it was a 1,800 foot walk on an inch in diameter wire across an active volcano. Anyone want to sign up for that? All right? You think your job is hard? My goodness! Try that on for sign. No. And do you think Nick paid attention to the steps that he took? I would like to suggest to you he did. And that's the picture that Paul's painting for us too. Walk in wisdom. Pay attention to the way that you live. And he points out two ways that we're called to do that. First, making the best use of the time. That's wisdom. Because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walk in wisdom, make the best use of her time. Literally in the Greek, redeem the time, buy back the time. You can almost hear the Apostle Paul leaning into the church at Ephesus like Robin Williams leaned in on Dead Poet Society and said, Carpe diem, seize the day. Don't let the hours pass you by. Because walking in wisdom means that we embrace intentionality and make an eternal impact. But in manual faith, we've got to first come to terms with how easy it is to be unintentional. Especially in our digitally distracted and constantly entertained age, we can click and swipe our way through a day and it can vanish before our eyes. Yes? So the call of Jesus, the call of Paul to the church in Ephesus is to make the most of our time. I don't have time to dig into this, but if you want to write these two things down, let me give you two ways you can make the most of your time. Choose faith over fear. Choose faith over fear. All that's going on in our world, it can be so easy to shrink back and live in fear. And I just want to speak a word over you. You have a choice every single day. Will I live in faith of Jesus or will I live in fear? But I want to gently, pastorally tell you, you can't live in both. Second, second, that we would be people who choose impact over ease who choose impact over ease. And what I've noticed in my life, not every time, but often, but often, the path of most impact is often not the easiest. Have you noticed the same thing? It's often the more difficult of the two paths that we find in front of us. Second way, Paul draws out this heart of wisdom. He writes this, And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. A lot of people interpret this wrong. I want to remind you that Paul has already told you that if you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in you and has sealed you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 And Paul's making this distinction between um, being drunk or having all of our inhibitions altered and being filled with the spirit. And it's a picture that the church in Ephesus would have known well. See, they were in a culture, in a cultural moment that worshiped the god Dionysus. And Dionysus was the god of religious ecstasy, winemaking, wine, wine. Ritual madness, grape harvest, fertility, and just to throw in one more, and theater, okay? And theater. But he was worshipped through massive parties uh, with drunken orgies that ensued. And Paul's saying, listen, listen, listen. You can't be drunk on wine and be filled with the Spirit of God. You can't make this the goal of your life and say to God, fill me with your spirit. It doesn't work that way. And so his call to those who follow the way of Jesus, who want to live in his way with his heart, is to desire spirits filling over reality alteration. They would be more in touch with reality because we're filled with the Spirit. A quick note, to be filled with the Spirit in this Greek, in the original, is in the present imperative passive, which means we're called to do this continually. It's a command imperative, and passive, we can't do it to ourselves. So the picture is one of posturing your heart before God to say to God, fill me, fill me with your spirit. And you may want to write this down. Being filled with the spirit is not about how much of the spirit you have. Being filled with the spirit is about how much of you the spirit has. He would control your life, that He would move you, that He would shape you, and that your life would start to look like addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. See, when we're filled with the Spirit of God, it means outward blessing to the people around us. We talk differently, we interact differently. It means upward praise. We sing of the goodness and the love and the mercy of God. And it means inward gratitude. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. These are the three gospel limps that Paul points out and says, will you be an imitator of God? Before we go rushing out of here and and you get your daylight savings time nap today um, Can I just invite you to take a moment and ask the spirit to draw one of these to the surface one of these that maybe you're out of alignment with and maybe it's that you're walking in the way of, of love and self-indulgence rather or in lust and self-indulgence rather than love and self-sacrifice. Maybe you're here today in a room this size. Undoubtedly, there are some and you are caught in the throes of an addiction to pornography or some sort of sexual addiction. And I just want to tell you as a church, we don't want to ignore that. We want to walk with you. We believe that Jesus has freedom and healing for you. Please reach out. You don't have to fight that battle on your own. We would count it a joy to walk with you towards life and light and freedom. Maybe you're just saying, I mean, Ryan, I've been shrinking back. My light is hidden. And maybe there's some people in your life that Jesus is inviting you to shine on. Or maybe there's a way you're wasting your time or filling yourself with things other than the Spirit. Ask Jesus, what does he want to point out to you today? Remember, remember, remember. You don't mimic the king in order to become his children. You imitate him because you are his children. And every single command that he gives you, is for you to walk in the fullness of joy that he designed you to walk in. Yeah, imitation is an invitation to joy. Tony Gwynn might be able to teach you how to hit, but Jesus wants to teach you how to live. And if there's a step of obedience that you are resisting, there is a blessing that you're forfeiting. Let's pray. Father, there, our hearts are open before you. And our prayer is not that we would just read your scriptures, but that we would let them read us. So Spirit of God, stir us, move us, change us. We want to imitate you and become your apprentices because we believe that in you is fullness of joy. There's things that we need to let go of to get more in alignment with who you are and what you're doing. Lord, we repent today. We want to walk with you. We want to think like you. We want to live like you. Because we want the joy that only you have and only you give. So it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. And everybody said, Amen and Amen.